0: The, pa- the passage we're going to read comes from 1 John chapter 3, so if you would like to turn there, it's also going to be on the screen behind me. 1 John chapter 3, we're going to look at the first 10 verses. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. See what love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet been revealed. What we do know, however, is this when He is revealed, we will be like Him, for we will see Him as He is. And all who have this hope in Him purify themselves just as He is pure. Everyone who commits sin is guilty of lawlessness sin is lawlessness you know that he was revealed to take away sins and in him there is no sin no one who abides in him sins that's pretty extreme no one who sins has either seen him or known him little children no one deceive you everyone who does what is right is righteous that just as he is righteous everyone who commits sin is a child of the devil For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The Son of God was revealed for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. Those who have been born of God do not sin, because God's seed abides in them. They cannot sin, because they have been born of God. The children of God and the children of the devil are revealed in this way. All who do not do what is right are not from God, nor are those who do not love their brothers and sisters. This is the word of the Lord. <laughs> Question mark? <laughs> As I said before, the part of the, a doctrine within the Church of the Nazarenes' articles of faith is the doctrine of sanctification, and it's a difficult doctrine to understand, and it has been prone to a lot of misunderstandings and misinterpretations. Has the church failed to preach adequately? Is it the fault of the clergy? Is it the fault of the listeners? Nevertheless, is, is the church, has the church failed at preaching this doctrine? And I would say, yes, we have. And we ask for forgiveness in terms of expounding this doctrine. I have heard stories where the people have misused and abused the possibility of being entirely sanctified. I have heard of some persons claiming that to be entirely sanctified means that you have a problem with praying the Lord's Prayer. Because part of the Lord's Prayer says... Lord, forgive us for our trespasses. And as entirely sanctified people, we proclaim we do not have any trespasses. And so therefore, there is this contradiction And people, some people, have said that the Lord's Prayer is wrong. There is such a thing as spiritual pride. And I would say that to not pray the Lord's Prayer in such a way is to be spiritually prideful. The doctrine of entire sanctification, the qualifier of entire, is complex. I'm sure all of us have heard it. If you're new to the Nazarene church, this is probably the first time you've heard it. And I hope to do justice about explaining it. And this is just one part, as I said, of the doctrine. But I hope to pray and teach about this one aspect. I hope to uh, teach and preach about it well. Though people have misunderstood the entire sanctification, they have, begged the question of clarif- they have begged the question, what do we mean by, when we say, like in the Lord's Prayer, trespasses? What does that mean? What does it mean to say entire? What does entwi- entire qualify? And we know interpretation could be such a complicated issue. I mean, we just read the passages. Here, let me repeat it for you if you weren't listening. Everyone who commits sin is guilty of lawlessness. No one who abides in him, in God, in Jesus, sins. No one who sins has ever seen him or known him. Everyone who commits sin is a child of the devil. Those who have been born of God do not sin. They cannot sin because they have been born of God. How do you interpret that? It's rough. <laughs> okay. I'm sure if you, it, it causes problems if you were to go outside and see someone committing sin. You'd be like, child of the devil, that will cause problems, <laughs> obviously. You don't want to go around calling people that, especially if you want to confess that you're entirely sanctified. It's interesting, though, that John highlights, highlights that the Son of God came not to destroy the child of the devil, but rather is to destroy the works of the devil. Even still, the epistle makes no mention on how to treat nor commands to hate the child of the devil. Nevertheless, the question still stands. How do you interpret this? What is going on here? Where is John coming from? On what basis is John eligible to make such statements? Pastor Jake has been posing a question. Is this actually possible? Is it possible for us not to commit sins or to use John's language? Is it possible for us to reach a space where we cannot sin. Does the church of Nazarene believe this? Is the church of the Nazarene the only denomination that believes this? Are we justified? What does the church of the Nazarene really believe? Before we answer that, I won't leave you hanging for a second there. Um, forgive me. But we will come to that question. But first, I want to highlight just two verses on our passage it's, chap- it's verses 2 and 3. It says, Beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet been revealed. What we do know, though, is this. When he is revealed, and the he, God, Christ, perhaps both, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is, and all who have this hope in him purifies themselves, just as he is pure. In this passage, we have both a negative aspect and a positive aspect. Let's start with the negative first. There's a negative aspect here. What we will be has not yet been revealed. What we will become, we are not who we ought to be. We are not who we will be when God comes back in Christ. But what we know, or we will be like him when we see him as he is, there's a negative aspect. There's something that we're not. There's something about us that is not complete, that is not perfect, that is not entirely there. But there's also this positive aspect that John says, you are God's God's children now. You are able to be called beloved. All who have this hope that we will see him as he is in the future means that right now you can purify yourselves just as Christ is pure. Now, this word pure, purify, is such an interesting word. We hear, we hear of the word pure, purify, or purification in different contexts, like water. Water purification is the process of removing undesirables, undesirable chemicals, biological con- contaminants, suspended solids, and gases from water. The goal is to produce water fit for a specific purpose. That's water purification. Or how many of you have an air purifier? It's a device which removes contaminants from the air in the room. Smelting, distillation, crystallization, and refining of metals are all examples of purification. Even your lungs, your kidneys, your liver, and spleen contribute to purify the blood in your body. Without purification, something goes wrong, and something goes in the wrong direction. But all the purification processes are similar. That a substance is purified by some sort of process for a specific purpose. That something is done with the end in mind, with the goal in mind. The water that we drink is perfect, not necessarily because it contains no impurities or that it's without fault, but it's perfect because the water we drink is perfect for drinking. It's perfect because of its purpose. If we call water imperfect, then it's because it's not suitable for drinking. and may cause us to become ill. At first, it's kind of odd to think about pure, purification, purify. Not only to describe inanimate objects, but as John uses it to describe ourselves, and even more so to describe Jesus as pure. But in First John, this word is not the only place we see uh, it pop up. Because Jesus himself uses the word in Matthew 5.8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Now here we have the pure language and the heart language connected. The pure in heart will see God. That's why they called happy. While for John, the hope of seeing Christ, a pure vision of who Christ is, purifies us right now. So there is this purity of the heart language. What is purity of the heart? Is it possible to have a heart purified? Not just partially, but entirely. How do we achieve it? First, let me expound what purity of heart is. Purity of heart is a biblical phrase. You find it in the Old Testament. Is there in the wisdom literature. The heart in Old Testament anthropology was the seed or center of the inner thinking or willing person. It's not so much like our modern um, notion of heart, where it's just the place of emotions and feelings and all this gushy and romantic kind of stuff. For the Old Testament anthropology, heart was both mind and heart as we use it. It was taught to be the basic center of a person. And the heart, spiritually speaking, and the literal, physical fleshiness of the person were really connected in Old Testament anthropology. There's uh, a translation, I believe, that that the Old Testament uses bowels of mercy to describe this. That literally they believe that mercy or the center of your inward thinking is found in the bowels of your body. And the New Testament presupposes this understanding of the heart. Now, in our modern sensibilities, even like early uh, times of psychology, beginning with Freud, heart and mind began to be separated, or these, all these faculties became to, became to be understood as isolated entities. Even there, we have a the separation between the conscious and the subconscious or unconscious being. But here, the New Testament presupposes this understanding of the heart. Therefore, to speak of purity, which means, like we said, cleansing from contamination, impurities, and pollution of the heart, is to say that the place of the thinking and willing motivation of your heart is rid, is made pure by all impurities. For what? For its own sake? Or as we read in Ezekiel 36? For God's sake. That all impurities are removed so that we may, or are moved by focusing and drawing our attention to the pure one who is found in Jesus Christ. Soren Kierkegaard famously put it this way in the title of his book. The purity of the heart is to will one thing. By purity, we also mean unity, unifying, cleansing, and integration. And by heart, we mean affections, intentions, motives, the center of motivation. So if I were to put purity of heart in contemporary languages, let me offer this phrase. A revolution in motivation. Revolution can mean an overthrow of a government or social order in favor of a new system, or it can mean the rotation or turning of some object to a new direction. The love of God has overthrown our internal government, governmental hearts, where we consider ourselves as president, as Lord, as king of this heart. The love of God has overthrown that in favor of a new system. The love of God has pulled us by its gravity to orbit around the orbit of Jesus. The love of God has won our hearts, our centers of motivation. This has begun when we first become, confess, our truly regenerate Christians. For when we're Christians for the first time, this is what's new in our lives. But the purity of heart the revolution of motivation is, proclaims that there is this new level, this new degree. And this is what Nazarenes, and I hope to argue, what we mean by entire sanctification. That our, our internal and conscious motivation, not by an act of ourselves, is wholly and purely and fully the work of God, the Spirit of God working on our lives, are, made, are transformed and made entirely and hooded, wholly devoted to God. We believe that in this life, not in the life to come, that surely in this life, it is possible to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our soul, and all our strength and our neighbors as ourselves, even if they may be enemies. That we believe that when God commands us to say, when God commands us to love us, love God and each other with everything that you are, that God is not just really saying love each other or love me partially, or 50%, or even 75%. That we believe that this is surely possible, yes, now. We believe that our motivation can reach a state where there is no double-mindedness, no rivaling loves, but rather just one love, an all-consuming love for our Lord. And what could be more perfect than an all-consuming love for our Lord? Indeed, we can sum it up this way. Our doctrine of entire sanctification is a state of perfection in what? Is it a perfection in performance? Is it a perfection in body? Is a perfection in knowledge? Let's read, go back, open up to 1 John, and let's go to chapter 4, verse 17, or verse 16. God is love, and those who abide in love abide in God. God, God abides in them. Love has been, here's the word, perfected. Among us in this, that we may have boldness on the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not reached perfection in love. We love because he first loved us. Those who say, I love God and hate their brothers and sisters are liars. For those who do not love a brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. The commandment we, must we have from him is this. Those who love God must love their brothers and their sisters. See, here's the difference, of key difference that the church in Nazarene believes in terms of not just all other denominations, but some denominations in the uh, Christian church. We are not the only ones who believe in a doctrine of entire sanctification or to use another language, Christian perfection. And that language comes from 1 John. We are not the only ones who believe in this such a thing. United Methodists, Methodists, Wesleyan denominations, believe in the doctrine of entire sanctification. And it goes back to a guy named John Wesley in the 1700s who was an Anglican in the Church of England. Roman Catholics also believe in the Church or in the uh, doctrine of entire sanctification, though they may call it something differently. I actually wrote a paper on this and argued that this doctrine could be a way to connect or to be unified with Roman Catholics, that our doctrine of Christian perfection is actually similar to Roman Catholics, and that we can actually begin a a work of ecumenism right there if we believe and start with things that we are similar with rather than what we are different from. It is not a perfection in performance. It is not perfection in your body. It is not perfection of knowledge. Rather, with John, with First John, the church of Nazarene confesses that it is a perfection of love. And we see that, in John says, whoever hates. It's not so much that if you do an outward act or you slap each other across the face, that's wrong. If we, this goes back to the Sermon on the Mount with Jesus. Jesus puts up the ante Racks up the standard. It is now not enough to be outwardly obedient. You have heard that it was said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, and he racks it up, he turns it up to 11. (laughs) All right, he says that you shall love your enemies, you shall pray for those who persecute you. You have heard that it was said, do not be angry. Do not have lust buried in your heart. If you look at a woman lustfully, you're ready to commit adultery. If you hate your brother, you're considered a murderer. Do not resist an evil evildoer. It is no longer enough in terms of Jesus. These are Jesus words. Don't take this up with me. These are the words of Jesus. It's no longer enough to not just commit sins, but rather it is something internal. That some, in your heart is their hatred in your heart is their lust, in your heart is their greed, in your heart is their pride. And Jesus says, this is not the way that my followers should be. Perhaps those who are entirely sanctified, those who confess that we have reached a state of perfection and love, where everything about our inner motivations cannot help but love God and love neighbor. That every thought that we have cannot help but point to God. Perhaps those kind of people, if they do exist, which I'm arguing they do, if they do exist, perhaps those are the kind of people who actually love their enemies. Perhaps those are the kind of people who actually pray that in their hearts, they believe that their enemies have been made in the image and that they're a child of God because of Jesus. Now, Does this require a lot of work to get there? Yes. <laughs> I am still working in that direction. I'm not going to keep uh, lie and confess to you right now that I have reached that state. But the church of Nazarene says that this is possible. This is something you can work towards. Because here's another question. If it were not possible... If there are certain denominations in the church that say you will always live an undivided life, your heart will always be pulled towards one direction and always give, be partially or even half or even at best um, give the most that you're capable of in terms of your motivation to God, you'll always live that way and then in death you'll finally have complete motivation. If it were not possible, Then I pose the question, what's the point in straining for it? If it were not possible, would you go for that kind of perfection? Would you go for that kind of inward motivation? But if it were possible, would you go for it? Now, we have to also understand that we still live Immortal, fallen, decaying, faulty bodies. Like I said, perfection and love entirely sanctified does not mean that we are perfect in performance. Does not, because we still have, John Wesley likes to say this, disordered brains. You have false judgment. You can have wrong inferences. You can make innumerable mistakes. You can make mistakes in judgment, mistakes in practice. You can use the wrong words or actions. Error in 10,000 shapes. You are not faultless. You still make mistakes. But while we still have disordered brains, the Church of the Nazarene, alongside other denominations, confess that though we may have disordered brains, we may have reordered minds that are set 100% on the Lord. That this perfection of love is a higher degree. It is like 1 John says, it is the fear that casts out from the deepest part of our hearts. There's a negative aspect. There's a not yet. We still live in the fallen mortal bodies. And then in the future, when we have a resurrection bodies, we will be as he is. But there's also an already that the Spirit of God has been given to us now. That like in Ezekiel 36 that we read, This is the heart. At the heart, ironically, at the of what Ezekiel is saying, that God is promising us a new heart. That God says, God will remove our hearts of stone and give us a new heart of flesh with a new spirit. God promises to remove, i.e., eradicate, in the terms of the. Even though we perhaps could use better language to describe that in our article, that is what it's getting at. It is to remove the heart of stone and put a heart of flesh that is alive to God. But we must focus, first and foremost, on Jesus. 1 John also says that those who abide in love abide in God. Abiding is another word for focusing, for for drawing our attention. But now to the question. How is this possible? How can we do this? What step can we take? First, I would like to say that beginning there is the wrong question. First, we must answer, who makes this possible? If Jesus Christ weren't a human being, then I would say it's not possible for us to have a purity of heart, to be entirely sanctified, to be perfect in love. Jesus was the first entirely sanctified human being. He was the first to have a purity of heart. He was the first human being that lived in your place and on your behalf. He was the first who willed the one thing, total devotion to the Father. He was the first to have an internal conscience, motivation to love God and love others. And then Jesus opens his hands to us today and says that this for you is possible. That it is possible for you to get to a point where love of enemies is just natural. That it is possible for you to get to a point where you are filled with the love of God to the brim. An analogy that I asked my boss, actually, in seminary, um, is how he would go about talking about entirely sanctified. And he gave this analogy, and I pose it to you. Hopefully it will make sense. You are the owner of a house, and indeed you are the house. That the first point when you became a Christian is when you invite Jesus into the house. The first step that Jesus took into your life, into your house, that is the point where you can wonder and say, thanks be to God, I am a Christian, I am saved by grace through faith alone. But then the point of growing in love, growing in perfection, is when you accept the Jesus' Jesus's command, and his command is this, let me in to every single facet of your house. Let me in to every closet that you have. Let me in to every attic, every basement, every room, everything that's in your house. And let me shine my light in it. That is the process and the journey to take with Jesus, to become fully perfected in love internally. The question now is, is the point, is there a point in this life when the entire house is lit with the light of Christ? Or is that just something that we wait for the future? The claim that we're making, and that, I'll also open it up, that you don't have to completely agree with this. But the point that the Church of Nazarene is making, with other denominations, we're not the only ones, is that the, inho- the entire house can indeed be in lit to the brim today in this life. Will it take a long time? Sure. But we believe that it is possible and that we should work towards it. In a world that claims to follow yourself and be ruled by these dispositions, self-sufficiency self-interested, self-important, self-centered, self-obsession, self-glorification, self-sovereignty, self-promotion, self-dramatization, self-satisfaction, self-concern, self-pity, and even self-denigration. This self-centered mindset is completely nullified and left behind. They're abandoned to the cross. You are liberated from them when you are filled with the love of God. When you are filled with the love of God, you are outside of yourselves. You are not interested in promoting yourself. Pride is gone. And I always like to say that there's another shadow side on the other side of pride that we felt to neglect that a lot of actually feminist theologians have um, brought up. That pride also has an element of self-pity and self-denigration, that there is no self because of people who have been abused or have been taught that they have no worth in themselves, and so they find their identity in someone someone else. That is still another form of self-centeredness, that you are willing to subject yourself to pain and to suffering. You want to self-denigrate yourself. That is the opposite side. Yes, even that needs to be nullified. So it is Jesus who is our hope in all this. He's the one who conquered all the selves. He indeed, if we believe him to be true, that he was indeed fully human, that indeed it is possible for us to not be ruled by the self-centered mindset. The danger is that we can be so focused on our achievements, our progression, our state of being entirely sanctified, of being perfected in love, that we miss the subtle, that subtle diversion of our attention to Christ, that we need to be focused completely always on Jesus and forget about ourselves, in a sense. And I, I would even go as far as to say that even our doctrine, our entire sanctification, can be misused if it's sought for its own sake. That to say that Christians who are entirely sanctified are freed from sin just focuses on the negative aspect. And I think a lot of our debates and discussions and theological arguments has been focused so much on the negative that we forgot the positive, that it is fully and purely and centered on loving God with all our being. That love is at the center, not being freed from sin. Being freed from sin is a byproduct of loving God with all our heart. If you fix your eyes on Jesus, the person who has purified the human heart, then your heart will grow in purity. Like we just sang, all that we are, all that we are. The emphasis is on the all for all that Christ is. He opens his heart to us so that we may abide in his heart, and we open our hearts so that he may abide in our heart. What would it look like for a congregation like New Beginnings to be filled with the love of God and neighbor? What would Lee Summit do when they see New Beginnings Church and they ask the question, How in the heck are you possible? How can you be so loving, so humble, so gracious, so full of mercy? What would happen to our history of tragedy, pain, division, and hurt if our hearts were to be made pure? as First John says, as Christ is. What would a heart filled with purity do for your co-workers, your friends, your neighbors, and yes, even your enemies? I'm sure that the world is not ready for a people who have been sprinkled with clean water and been given hearts of flesh instead of hearts of stone. Because if that were possible, then it will make the world say, or oh combat the world's narrative that it is not possible. We're just human, right? If another life is kind of is possible in this life, then I guess it begs the question, why don't you want to live in that kind of life? If it were possible, if a pure heart were possible, an entirely pure heart. Then I guess it would indeed have to be the work of a God. Maybe what Jesus was on to something when he said, The pure in heart will see God. As a way to end this, I would like to say a prayer. It's a hymn, actually, uh, written by Charles Wesley, John Wesley's brother. It is a prayer to be fully perfected in love, to be entirely sanctified as Nazarenes would like to say. And so I'm going to offer this as our our prayer this morning, so if you would bow your heads at this time and just receive these words. Jesus, thy boundless love to me, no thought can reach, no tongue declare. Unite my thankful heart with thee and reign without a rival there. To Thee alone, dear Lord, I live; myself to Thee, dear Lord, I give. O grant that nothing in my soul may dwell but Thy pure alone, Thy pure love alone. O may Thy love possess me whole, my joy, my treasure, and my crown. All coldness from my heart remove; my every act, word, thought, be love. This love unwearied I pursue, and dauntlessly to thee aspire. O may thy love my hope renew, burn in my soul like heavenly fire, and day and night be all my care to guard the sacred treasure there. In suffering be thy love my peace, in weakness be thy love my power. And when the storms of life shall cease, Jesus, in that important hour, in death, As in life, be thou my guide, and save me, who for me has died. Amen.